Hi, you're up front with Richard Niles, and I'm up front for the last in the current series with one of the founding fathers of Bop, Mr. Billy Eckstein, and his leading lady, the sassy Sarah Vaughn. You're on, Sister Sarah, you're on. Sarah Vaughn was frequently described as an opera singer without an opera, and indeed the same description could be applied to Billy Eckstein as well. Sarah was a phenomenally good musician all the way around. She played very good piano. In fact, her first recording was made not as a singer, but as a pianist with Dizzy Gillespie. Musically and career-wise, there were two peas in a pod, so to speak. Their careers very much parallel each other. Their musical styles are very similar to each other. You could almost describe them as male and female versions of each other. Band leaders were always looking for singers, and singers were always looking for band leaders. You know, the first time she sang in public, so to speak, in New York, she hitched right onto that star. You treat me it's a fascinating artistic relationship between the two of them, Billy Eckstein and Sarah Vaughan. This series is all about singers joining the band leaders up front, and in some cases, stealing the limelight. There were many reasons why big bands went into decline and focus shifted to their solo singers. Economically, pressures of World War II meant that clubs could no longer afford to pay a 20-piece big band. At the same time, there was increasing tension between radio stations and ASCAP, the society that licensed the right to broadcast composers and publishers' work. New labels sprang up, needing new artists and new songs for a new generation. Here's New York music writer Stephanie stein Kreese. This is such a fabulous, fabulous part of American popular music history and jazz history. You know, some of it came about, I don't want to say by accident, but by just these wonderful sets of circumstances that all took place at the same time. You know, like the growth of the dance bands through the 20s and then moving on into the real swing band and big dance band era and in conjunction with the growth of radio and singers being on the radio and little radio stations around the country. You know, I feel like a lot of singers really got their starts on these funny little radio stations sort of in the middle of nowhere. And then once the big band era was, how shall we say, in full swing, at first, you know, it seemed like the singers were more like an afterthought, but then people came to expect them, you know, and want to see a really attractive girl singer, or a really attractive guy singer, but for many, it was kind of an expected part of the entertainment, but as the 30s grew on, it really became like there were certain matches, you know, where the match between the singer and the band was so magical and added so much to the presentation that I think everybody began to expect it. Thank you. 
they added so much to the music. You know, you felt like it wasn't just any singer. It was these particular set of voices mixed with the particular set of instrumentalists some of the bands had that really added to the excitement. Singer, songwriter, musician, and author, Gene Lees. Part of it, of course, happened because um, the American Federation of Musicians under its dictatorial president, James Caesar Petrillo, called a ban on recording in order to get a royalty. The principle was correct, but the handling of it was stupid, so the bands didn't record for almost two years. In the meantime, since singers were not required to be members of the union, they recorded with vocal groups. But by the time the record band was over, the singers had been established in importance in America. By the 50s, even though some of the bands hung in and reformed, they had a much tougher time, but it was really, in a sense, this sea change in popular music when the big bands were not the recording artist hits that they had been, you know, in the 30s and 40s. It was more like the vocalists who were topping the charts, either as singles or, as, or in smaller combos or with studio orchestras. So it was definitely a different ball game, so to speak. The popularity of the music itself was spread by being able to catch a East Coast broadcast on the West Coast or a West Coast broadcast on the East Coast. You know, that really, this was the beginning of our sense of our music, you know, kind of having a national identity almost and being spread from one small town to another through the airwaves. I, I kind of think a lot of the success of the era had to do with radio in this way that really, really was a boon to all the performers. Billy Eckstein was an artist filled with contradictions. His deep, smooth voice delivered romantic music, but his music was arranged and composed with the new expanded harmonies of bebop. So how did Sarah Vaughan come to be fronting his big band? Her first break came at that landmark venue where so many stars were born, the Apollo Theater. Vaughn's biographer is Leslie Gorse. Sarah was um, kind of a rebellious young woman who uh, just fell in love with music and went out to um, sing anytime she could. And uh, she did enter the Apollo Amateur Contest, and uh, Billy Eckstein happened to hear her. And he thought she was great, and he brought his boss... Billy Eckstein was a great singer with the Earl Hines band at first. And he told Earl to come and hear Sarah Vaughan. And Earl said when he heard her, am I, is that girl singing or am I dreaming? And as the years go by. It's the hardest place I think I've ever worked. But thank God I worked there. Really, I just went to get 10 bucks. That was in 1942. But I was very fortunate, I won first prize which was a week at the theater. And during that week, I was at the theater with Ella Fitzgerald. And during that week while I was there, Billy Eckstein came in to catch the show. He was singing with Earl Father Hines at the time. And about two weeks, I was with Earl Father Hines. That romance never will die. So he went backstage afterwards, and she had won the, the contest. She did not have a great deal of social graces. And he said to her, would she like to come and work with him in his band? And she said, uh. <laughs> and he, I think he bought her a Coca-Cola or something of that nature. 
And then she went to work with him. He wore her white dress with a peplum. She had no clothes whatsoever. She could have cared less about dressing and looking swanee, and she didn't know. I'll always be in love with you. This is a part of American history that I just find still so uh, marvelous that through our little traditions, and I know similar ones exist around the world, but talent contests, radio shows, amateur hours, but the, the Apollo amateur contests were a very big deal. And um, that was how Ella Fitzgerald got her start. That was how other singers got her start. So apparently um, Billy Eckstein discovered her at one of the Apollo contests. And he, at the time he was in the Earl Hines band and she joined the band. Cause every time it rains, I realize what you Author of many great books on popular music, here's Will Friedwald. The fascinating thing about that was that she was also a studied piano player, and she was such a good pianist that Earl Hines used her as a deputy piano player with the big band. There were times when Earl Hines would go out in front and just conduct, and he would let her play the piano. And, you know, to be able to play deputy piano for Earl Hines, you had to be a pretty good piano player, because Earl Hines was just about the best piano player that ever there was. So that was quite a ringing recommendation. Father Hines was one of the most influential jazz pianists of the day, who had begun his career as musical director for Louis Armstrong in the 1920s. From 28 to 38, he led his own band, which became very successful due to nightly coast-to-coast broadcasts from the Terrace Ballroom, controlled by Al Capone's mob. He had picked up his nickname, Father, from a radio announcer who had overtrained at the bar. In the 40s, Hines escaped from the mob's management and had developed his style and become a forerunner of the new music called bebop. Many of Bop's most famous practitioners joined his band, like Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, Bud Johnson, Eckstein, and young Sarah Vaughan. Well, Sarah went on the road with the Earl Hines band. She was 18 or 19, and she showed up with her clothes in a paper bag. Had to get on the train, and um, the boys in the band, including Billy, took the paper bag from her and threw it around until it became all tattered. And then they um, took her out to... Um, get her a bona fide piece of luggage. And she went on the road with them and she was able to keep up with them in every kind of way. She was equal to their banter, she was equal to their, she was equal to the tough life on the road. She was equal to their teasing. She was, uh, that's where she got her name Sassy because she could give it as well as take it. Well, it seems the dream department is floating front and center now. 
It's a pinup girl. And what pins? Yeah, it's glamorous, amorous, Sarah Vaughn. Well, how are you, dreamboat? How are you, tugboat? Oh, no. <laughs> Sarah, just for that, I'm going to let you sing. Don't blame me. That band became Billy Eckstein's own band in 1944. You know, around 44, the band sort of morphed into Billy Eckstein's band. And this was one of the most exciting bands. Billy Eckstein was ready to leave, was ready to uh, go out on his own. Uh, the idea was still so new that uh, rather than completely go, on, uh, go out on his own as a single, which was actually beginning to happen, Sinatra had gone on his own as a single, but Eckstein thought because that he was, of all these other circumstances, that he should go out uh, with his own big band at that point. Plus, I think he really wanted to lead a big band uh, on his own at that point. Can I He was a crooner, an interpreter, you know, along the lines of, of a Sinatra in a sense. It's like when you heard him, the voice and the music just mesh. He was a lyric interpreter of the highest order. Sarah Vaughan, her voice was a powerful, powerful instrument. She had a lot of different colors in her voice, and I think that she was the quintessential jazz singer. They both had this great gift for reshaping a melody, for interpreting a piece of music, and that they would not wouldn't only sing the notes as written, but they had this amazing way of singing all the harmonies around the notes. So when they would sing, uh, it's a very a process very similar to improvisation, but they kept a great deal of the melody in their singing, but they interpreted it to such a degree that you know it was not the original melody that the composer had written, but it was very, very much embellished by all these uh, harmonic changes that they would make. They would not only sing the note as written, but they would sing other notes and the chord changes around it. I'm under your spell, so how can I help it? Don't blame me. Well, hope the heat's on. There's a gentleman present who can make the Dittar boys look like they've been sending coals with smoke signals. When he buzzes you with those specks and spots, watch out! It's our old friend, Billy Eckstein! And his first number is Blowing the Blues Away. So, with the help of Bud Johnson, Eckstein formed his big band with Bop's finest players like Parker and Gillespie, Fats Navarro, Art Blakey, Dexter Gordon, and Miles Davis. Add 
to that arrangements by Dizzy Gillespie and the superb voices of Eckstein and Sarah Vaughan, and you got one hell of a band. I got the blues cause my baby put me down. I got the blues cause my baby put me down. I'm gonna grab a train and leave this lonesome town. So blow Mr. Gene, blow Mr. Johnson too. It was really the modernists' band. You know, this was where a lot of the young beboppers were able to play together. Billy Eckstein was very supportive of their more modern thinking ideas and tried to incorporate some of these into the arrangements. But it was a much more of a challenge. Even then, Heinz's band, which was a fantastic, fantastic band, didn't go quite as musically out on a limb as the Eckstein band did with allowing the musicians to take lengthy solos. You know, this was a really incredible band. Where did Sarah Vaughan, as a singer, fit into such an innovative and pioneering band? It has to be remembered that Sarah was a very sophisticated pianist. That meant that she sang with a highly developed understanding of harmony that set her apart from the crowd. Sarah Vaughan was like her peers, you know, was just like these really questing people like Dizzy Gillespie who really wanted to see, well, what could she do with all this material and how, what way could it go? She had the opportunity to be with incredibly adventurous musicians at a time where their ideas were coming together and she really utilized a lot of that. She was really respected by especially some of the guys in that band. You know, they loved what she did, and I think they did treat her as a peer, not just as an accessory. There was sort of a, almost a, a negative attitude a lot of these, about a lot of the big bands and their singers, you know, which many people felt like, well, they were just there for decoration anyway and didn't get taken as seriously for their musicianship. But I think in Sarah's case, that was not true. <laughs> Life of a diva of that caliber is so stressful that we can't imagine it. And before she went out on stage, every single time, no matter where she was singing, she had a fit of nerves. I mean, terrible nerves. I just can't do it. I just can't do it, she would say. No matter where she was and no matter how far along in her career she was, she just was always prone to stage fright. And she overcame it by drinking a lot and smoking a lot and staying up three nights at a time. It's just a very hyper existence. She would take catnaps in the, in the dressing rooms. Joe Williams once saw her taking a catnap in a dressing room before going on stage, so she, it would enable her to continue. First came the music. Nothing interfered with it. No matter what she did, it didn't ruin her voice. Yeah, she liked the good life, but the good life enabled her to, to deal with the demands and the nerves that that kind of uh, a career will um, impose on a person. And it all belongs to you and me. 
together Laughed at the rain together Sang love's refrain together Then we both pretend it would never end That band, though, really had to struggle with their music because they didn't just stick to doing Eckstein's hit standards. You know, they went out on a limb um, playing some of the more boppish arrangements and the Gil Fuller arrangements. And they had a disastrous tour of the South, you know, where people just couldn't understand what they were trying to do. Um, So that band was kind of a hothouse. She really throughout her life, you know, kept crediting Billy Eckstein, not just for the opportunity, but also as a teacher, you know, in the way that he was such a master of phrasing and so forth. But they ended up with, of course, you know, completely different styles, completely different means of expression. Sarah Vaughan just has incredible, incredible gifts as a vocalist. So I think we only get the teeniest taste of those (laughs) when you hear her with the Eckstein band. I'm pretty sure that this is something that a direction that Sarah Vaughan was heading before she came under Eckstein's influence being in his presence for two or three years steadily between the Eckstein and the Heinz orchestras it certainly consolidated that decision on her part to work in that particular style as a result they ended up being very musically compatible and sounding very similar to each other although of course they they had their own differences, but they had these big, grand, lush sounds, almost operatic. Oh, I love to climb a mountain And to reach the highest beam But it doesn't thrill me half as much As dancing cheek to cheek Well, she did learn from Billy a lot. Exactly what she learned, I don't know. Phrasing is in how to tell a story. She knew how to sing. But she learned phrasing and she learned stage presence and things like that from him. And she worships this older man, this handsome man. He was extraordinarily good-looking, too. And she was not extraordinarily good-looking. She was no Lena Horne. She was a very cute girl, but by the standards of that day, everyone wanted to look like Lena Horne or else they weren't considered pretty. And when they sang together, it must have been a spectacular experience. I'm in heaven And my heart beats so that I can hardly speak And I seem to find the happiness I see When we're out together dancing This was indeed a truly spectacular experience. But like many great bands, Eckstein's musical brilliance was not matched with hit records and was short-lived. 
Sarah launched her solo career in 1945. We seem like passing strangers now. How can you hurry by? She developed a sense of her great abilities, and she knew that she should go on the concert stages. So she did. She went out onto 52nd Street, and uh, she got whatever booking she could. And one of them was at a place called Cafe Society downtown in Greenwich Village, where she met a trumpet player named George Treadwell, who fell in love with her singing. And he wanted to be a manager anyway, and he was excellent at it. He'd had a lot of coaching. And he decided to take her on as a client, his first client, and um, he did very, very, very well with her. Speak my name just once more. You might find right there and then. Strangers can be lovers There's no question that the combination of her omnipotent vocal cords with a sophisticated musicianship influenced by her time with Billy Eckstein created the unique magic that was the divine Sarah Vaughan. Thanks to tonight's contributors Leslie Gorse, Will Friedwald, Stephanie Steinkreis, and Jean Lees, and thanks to my sassy producer Elizabeth Clark and to the very upfront Graham Knowles for mixing the whole series. I'll be back soon with a brand new series on the history of pop arranging, but in the meantime, thanks to all you nice BBC Radio 2 listeners for staying upfront with Richard Niles. Strangers can be loved.